Amen. Well, hey, it is so good to see each and every one of you here this morning. And if you're joining us online, a special welcome to you today. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And it really is always humbling and an honor to be able to share with you on a Sunday morning. Um, I was thinking back as I was preparing when my brother and I, it's just the two of us, when we were younger, um, we would always go to E.D. and Erlene's uh, house. And their last name were Parker. So we would always say, we're going to the Parker's house. We're going to the Parker's house. And I brought a picture of my brother and I. Um, this was us when we were a little bit younger. Um, and I remember the Parkers were kind of like our adopted uh, grandparents because most of our family, almost all of our family lives in the California area. Um, and so we were living in Oklahoma at the time. And, and so we got to know the Parkers really well. Anytime my parents would go on an anniversary or on a date night or anything like that, we would go to the Parkers. And we loved it because we would help E.D. feed the cows or we would go play in the hay barn or we would go down by the creek. But it was an incredible, incredible time for me and my brother. Well, I remember going into the house one day and Erlene tells the story better than I do. And she said, I was just hot and sweaty and tired. And I saw a giant pitcher of red Kool-Aid on the counter. It was like, oh, right there. And I was too small from the picture. You could see that I was too small to pour myself a glass. And so what I did was I pushed a chair over to the counter and I started dipping my hand and my arm into the pitcher and putting it to my mouth like this because that's how a seven-year-old drinks Kool-Aid when you're too small. So I, I was drinking the Kool-Aid from my hands, and Erlene walks in. She grabs a spoon, and she's like, Michael James, and she spanked me on my bottom while I'm, I'm literally caught red-handed, right? <laughs> and I jump off of the chair, and I run, and I find a closet, and I hide inside of the closet, and Erlene comes to me. She wipes off the tears, she gives me a hug and she kisses my forehead and she says, Michael, I forgive you. It's okay, but never do that again, <laughs> right? And I think all of us, every single one of us, we probably at some point in time in our life, we've had that moment where we feel like busted, right? Where we're caught in the middle of doing something or we're caught doing whatever it is and all of a sudden we feel this right here. I'm gonna put this up here on the board. We feel, what is that? Guilt. Aren't you so excited you came to church today to talk about guilt? Aren't you just so pumped to talk about guilt today? But I, I want us to take a few moments to talk about guilt. Because guilt is really, it's kind of like a homonym, isn't it? You know what I mean? There's two forms of guilt. Maybe for you, when you think of guilt, you think of this word right here. Being guilty. You, you either are or you aren't. Right? Uh, maybe you, you think of this. You think court when you think of being guilty. Maybe you think of law, right? When you're being guilty. Or maybe it's just this one. This is a, a good one. Speed limit. 
55, right? You guys are familiar with that? I mean, a court of law decides whether you're guilty or not. This is kind of a homonym. You either are or you aren't. But there's another form of guilt, isn't there? Because you, you can be guilty, but, but then there's this other side of guilt. This one right here. Feeling guilty. Is there anything worse than feeling guilty? I, I mean, whenever those red and blue lights show up behind me, and I'm not talking about the ice cream man. Some of you are confused. I'm not, I'm not talking about the ice cream man. And, and I'm so grateful and I'm so thankful for our law enforcement and the men and women who put on the uniform every day and literally many of them are laying their lives on the line for us. I'm so grateful for them. But, but I don't know if you've ever seen those red and blue lights and all of a sudden you feel guilty. I mean, the first thought that comes to my mind is I've got to hide my drugs. I've got to hide my guns, Right? <laughs> And, and all of a sudden, I'll, I'll try to pick up my heart from the bottom of my feet because I'm just feeling guilty. I feel like I'm a felon or something. And I pull over slowly, take a deep breath, and I'm like, okay, thankfully I don't have any drugs or guns in my car, right? But, but I start thinking, why did I feel that way? Why, why, did, I feel, why did I feel guilty? And, and a lot of times, what comes with the feeling of guilt is this, right? Shame. We, we feel shame because of something that we've done or something that we've said or the way that we've treated someone. Or, or here's another one. Isolation. We isolate ourselves because think about it for a moment. What do you do with the people that you feel guilty around? I, I don't know about you, but I avoid them. Don't you avoid them? The people who make you feel guilty, don't, don't you want to isolate yourself from them? Or, or the last one here is just simply this. Hiding. Like me with Erlene. I thought, man, if I go and hide in the closet, she'll never find me. And, and hopefully what I thought I just did will just all go away. We think if we go and hide that maybe somehow they'll forget or somehow they won't remember but, but guilt, it, it, it really can affect our relationships. I, I mean, for some of you, you, maybe you're watching online today and, and you haven't been to church in a really long time. Why? Because you feel guilty. I mean, you would say, Pastor Michael, I have a faith in God, I believe in God, but a relationship with God? Mm, not really. I'm giving God and me some distance because every time I talk to God or every time I go to church or every time I'm around people who associate themselves with Jesus or God, I just feel, I feel guilty. And see, guilt can obstruct our relationship with God and it can obstruct our relationship with one another. Did you know that? And so I said, you know what? I, I think it would be great if we talked about guilt today because I don't know if you've ever gotten an email from your boss and said hey we need to talk later what does that automatically make you think right I know what it makes me think that's it I'm done I'm fired 
right? I log on to my LinkedIn. I'm looking for my LinkedIn password, trying to brush up my resume, thinking, I wonder if there's any good jobs for former pastors. I wonder if there's any good kind of like a, an on-ramp to find a job for a former pastor, right? Or students, if you have teachers and they say, hey, can we talk after class? What do you feel? Guilt. Or if your spouse texts you and said, hey, we need to talk tonight. And that's probably a bad example because you really probably are guilty for something <laughs> when that happens. But, but I just think, you know what, let's just take a couple of minutes and talk about this because the Bible actually has a lot to say about guilt. And, and some of us, we just dismiss our guilt. We, we just ignore it. Some of us avoid it. Some of us have just decided, I'm just not going to feel guilty anymore. I'm going to suppress those feelings down. And I, I just don't like feeling guilty because gu feeling guilty is not fun. But what we're going to see in Scripture today and what I hope that you take away, that there really is a way forward through our guilt. And so we're going to be in the Old Testament. And for those of you who are new to Scripture the Bible is broken up into two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to be in the Old Testament, and we're going to be in this book called Psalms. And Psalms, one of the main authors of Psalms is a guy by the name of David. You might know him as King David. He was the second king of Israel. And David is an incredible writer of songs and just this poetry telling us about his feelings with God. And when I say the name David and, who do you automatically fill in the blank with? Goliath, right. David and Goliath. That would be so much fun to talk about David and Goliath, right? Killing the giants in your life. But today we're not talking about David and Goliath. We're talking about David and Bathsheba. Yes. Aren't you so excited to talk about David and Bathsheba? Mmm. Hallelujah. All right, so David and Bathsheba. Bathsheba is an interesting character in the Old Testament in Israel's history because Bathsheba is this incredibly gorgeous, beautiful woman. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we're shown this picture, this story of David and Bathsheba. Now, for those of you who already know the story and know where I'm going, David was supposed to be somewhere. Where was he supposed to be at? War, that's right. David was supposed to be off at war. So Joab and all of his mighty men who've done great exploits, they're off at war together fighting the battle. And David's at home chilling, probably in his silk robe. He just had a steak dinner. He had some broccoli on the side. He ordered some tiramisu. His chef brought it to him. He's loving life in this moment. And David goes out on his terrace, goes out on his patio, on his roof, and he's walking along and he sees this woman, Bathsheba. And she's taking a bath. Bathsheba taking a bath. Can't make this up, folks. It's in there. <laughs> it writes itself. So Bathsheba's taking a bath. And, and David's just like, wow, she is so fine. And he gets his servants and he says, hey, go and find out who this woman is. And the servants come back, and I think they're trying to splash some water on David's face because they say this to David. Hey, David, this is Elaham's daughter, Bathsheba. This is someone else's daughter, David. They're hoping this snaps him back into reality. David, this is Uriah's 
wife. David, this is someone else's wife. But David is so caught up in the moment that he says, I want you to bring her to me. Now, we don't know if they text one another for a while, if they Snapchatted, if they DM'd each other. We're not sure how long David and Bathsheba talked. But what we do know is this, that eventually they slept together. And Bathsheba goes back home, and they think it's just a one-night stand. But a few weeks later, she sends him a message. David, I went to Walgreens and CVS I got both pregnancy tests and both of them have two pink lines, I'm pregnant. In all of this time that I've been thinking about David and Bathsheba, I've had Usher's Confessions in the back of my mind. Do you guys remember that album from 2004, anybody? Just me? Okay. Usher's Confessions, the first song on Usher's album, Confessions, from 2004, it's a straight party hit. It's called Yeah. Um, that's where Luda calls Usher Usher for the first time. That's pretty crazy. But then you get down to song number three and Usher's writing about confessions. And Usher says this, I've got this one girl that I'm with, but I've got this other girl on the side over here. But then confessions part two is where it gets real because this is where Usher says, and this girl that I've been creeping with is three months pregnant and she's keeping it. And then that's when he goes into the chorus and says, just when I thought I said all I could say, my chick on the side says she's got one on the way. You know it. You know it. So good. All right. So good. But that's when I've been thinking about David and Bathsheba because David... He's thinking to himself, my chick on the side has one on the way. And all of a sudden, David goes into panic mode. He goes into panic mode and he's thinking to himself, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So he sends for Uriah to come back and bring a report. And Joab sends Uriah from the battlegrounds. David fixes him this incredible meal. He gives him an update and David says, he gets him, he's trying to give him as much wine as possible and he says, hey, Uriah, go home and sleep in your own bed. Enjoy your wife, hoping that somehow, maybe if they sleep together, that now it'll be Uriah and Bathsheba, and he'll be able to cover over this whole mess. But Uriah, we're, we're seeing, we get a glimpse into Uriah's character in this moment, because he won't even go home. Uriah goes outside to David's servants' quarters and sleeps on the ground. And the servants bring back the message, hey, Uriah was up with us last night. And David says, Uriah, why, why? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah says, David, the ark of God, this, this box that represented the presence of God, is out in the field with the armies of Israel. David, the armies of Israel are sleeping out on the ground, fighting a war that I should be fighting at. How in the world could I go home with a clear conscience and sleep in my own bed and be with my wife? So David's in panic mode now. He, he, has, he says, okay, well, hang here for another dinner, tries to get him drunk again. The same thing happens. And so David writes a note to Joab. And he says, I want you to put Uriah at the front lines. And I want you to pull back whenever the fighting gets the fierce. And I want Uriah to be killed. And he rolls up the note, 
seals it with his signet ring, and he hands it to Uriah, and Uriah has no idea he's carrying his own death sentence. And he goes, and Joab does exactly what King David asked him to do. And Uriah dies. And Bathsheba hears about it and she goes into mourning and her neighbors and her community gather around her and they mourn together. And after a few weeks, David brings her into the palace and everyone's talking. Did you see what King David did? Man, what an awesome guy. He takes one of his soldier's widows, a fallen soldier, and takes her and he's taking care of the family. What an incredible king we have. And David for a year, gets away with it. For about a year, no one knows what David did. And then Nathan the prophet has the horrific job of coming and talking to David. And Nathan comes in and he says, hey, David, can I tell you a story? And David's like, yeah, tell me a story, Nathan. I love stories. Maybe I'll turn this into a song. What do you got? And Nathan says, well, there was this rich man, and this rich man had donkeys and cattle and sheep and goats. He was a wealthy, wealthy man. But there was this poor man that was also living not too far away from the rich man. Well, Nathan, what did the poor man have? Well, the poor man just had this one little ewe lamb. And this ewe lamb was almost like a pet to the family. He, he would hold it and it would sleep in his arms. It would play with the kids. It ate from his own table. It, it was like a family pet. Well, awesome. Well, one day the rich man has a guest and he's going to make him a huge meal and, and welcome him in, his guest. And David's like, what do you think he's going to make him, Nathan? And he says, well, he's going to make the lamb chops. And David says, I love the lamb chops. Every time a guest comes in, I always order the lamb chops. They're so great. And Nathan says, well, not so great because the rich man didn't take one of his own lambs. No, the rich man went to the poor man's house and took his one you lamb. And he killed it. And he served it to his guest. And in this story, in this moment of drama, David, who was formerly a shepherd before he was a king, is all wrapped up into the story. And he throws over the table and he flips back the chair and he says, this man must surely die for what he's done. And Nathan stands up and points back at David. And he says, you're the man. And I don't mean like great drive, David. You're the man. I mean, you're the one who's done this. God took you from the fields watching over the sheep and now you're the king of Israel. He gave you Saul's house. He gave you all of the wives that you could want. He's given you riches. He's given you victory on every side, David. And if that wasn't enough, he would have given you more. So why did you think it was okay to sleep with Uriah's wife? Why did you think no one would find out that you had Uriah killed? And I love the Bible so much. This is why I tell you, read your Bible. Because we get a glimpse into David's journal in Psalm 51. We get this incredible picture of what David is feeling in Psalm 51, and listen to what he says, and if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, 
according to your unfailing love. Not because of anything I've done, God, according to your great compassion. God, I haven't read enough. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't memorized enough scripture. I haven't given enough offerings. I haven't attended church enough. God, there's nothing that I can do to make this right. I am throwing myself on the mercy of God. And I'm asking, not according to me, but according to your covenant-keeping love. God, would you have mercy on me, please? And then David takes ownership. Listen to what he says. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's all on me. David's not blaming Bathsheba. David's not blaming Uriah. He's not blaming Nathan. Our tendency when we feel guilty is to blame everyone else. Will she, will he, will they, will uh. And David says, no, I'm not pointing the fingers to anyone else. This is my fault. This is on me, God. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. But David, for about a year, you were got away with it. No, I didn't. David, for a year, no one knew about it. I knew. David, for a year, it looked like you were free and in the clear. I wasn't free. It was locked up inside of me. And it had me locked up. See, church, he goes on and says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, God. To which I'm sure if Uriah could have, he would have knocked on David's door, uh, David, hello, <laughs> remember me? You sinned against me. And David, he, he knows this, he understands this. And you know this, and I tell my kids this all the time. Your consequences your sin, excuse me, never just affect you. You are not an island to yourself. Your sin affects all of the people around you. Your spouse, your coworkers, your kids, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Your sin has incredible repercussions. And David understands that. And he says, God, I know there's some hard conversations that I'm going to have to have. I know there's some things that have to be taken care of, God, but before I go and I take care of those things, God, I need to acknowledge against you have I sinned. And you know why David says this? Because he knows that he broke God's standard. And whether you believe in Jesus, whether you believe in the Bible, whether you believe in God or not, we all, whether you want to call it your conscience, we all know when we've broken the standard, don't we? There is something deep inside of you, whether you try to suppress it, ignore it, unless you, and you've tried to become immune to it, you still know there is something broken inside of you. And David says, I have to go to the one who defines what is right and wrong. My therapist would just tell me to change the standard. Well, just, just lower the bar. No one can live up to that expectation. But David says, no. I think God is loving enough 
And I think God is gracious enough and forgiving enough to have mercy on me. So I'm throwing myself on his mercy. In Psalm 51, we have this, and he says this, so you are right in your verdict, and you're justified when you judge. He's saying, God, whatever you decide my punishment is, that's it. I'll take it. Whatever you decide. And I love this because in Psalm 32, just a few chapters before, David tells us what he does, what happens when he tries to conceal his sin. In Psalm 32, it says this, when I kept silent, when I hid it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David is saying this, I'm dying inside. When I try to cover when I tried to isolate, when I tried to hide God, it was as if I was suffocating. I, I, it was as if the summer heat, all of us here in Texas know about the summer heat. It was draining me. It was, it was too heavy. It was too much for me to handle. And listen to what he says. Then I acknowledge my sin to you. And did not cover up my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Here, here's the bottom line. The way to rid yourself of guilt is to admit your guilt to God. The way to rid yourself of guilt is to admit that you're guilty. Have you ever had to be admitted into a hospital? Anyone in here? You've been admitted? What are you doing when you're being admitted into a hospital? You're telling them this, there is something broken inside of me and I can't fix it. And you're admitted into that hospital. Until you're willing to admit your guilt to God, God can't begin to fix the brokenness inside of you or inside of me. The way to rid yourself of guilt is to admit your guilt to God. And for some of you, you're, you're still dismissing your guilt. You're just dismissing it. You said, I don't like feeling guilty, so I'm just going to dismiss it. And if that's you this morning, on behalf of your family, on behalf of those who are in close relationship with you, can I just ask you to do something? Would you just do an honest inventory of what's going on inside of here? Because if you're just dismissing your guilt and you're acting like nothing is wrong, with you and your parents, with you and your spouse, with you and your coworkers, with you and your boss, if you're acting like nothing is wrong, then I can promise you those relationships are broken. Because if you just dismiss your guilt and ignore it, it's going to affect the people around you. And then for some of you, you've dealt with your guilt. And what I mean by that is this, that like David, you've brought it to God and you said, God, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. Will you please forgive me? I'm willing to admit my guilt to you. And for some of us, when we see people like that who have admitted their guilt and it feels like what? They're getting away with something. Do you guys remember the prodigal son story in the New Testament? The older brother 
The Bible tells us that the younger brother spent all that the dad had. He spent the fortune on prostitutes, on wild living, on crazy living. And he comes home and what does dad do? He throws a party. And the older brother, it says, is a far way off and he hears the music playing from a far way. If, if you can hear the music from far away, they are getting down, right? <laughs> and the brother is dancing at the party. And the older brother is like this. Dad, he shouldn't be dancing. He should be feeling guilty for a little bit longer. We need to put a giant scarlet letter on him. I mean, Dad, do you know what he did? Do you know all the wrongs that he committed against you and against me? Dad, he needs to feel more guilt. But can I tell you something? If your tendency is this, when you see the brother, the younger brother or the younger sister dancing because of the grace that they've received, if this is your posture, can I just encourage you to find the beat <laughs> and to start dancing? And if this is all you can do with the dance, just do this. Just start right here. Find the beat and just start dancing with the younger brother, with the younger sister. You know why? Because one day you're going to need that kind of grace. You're going to need that kind of forgiveness. And if God is big enough to forgive their mess and to forgive their brokenness and to show them grace, you know what? I think God is big enough to show you grace and to show you forgiveness and to show you the kind of unfailing love that you want to have. And instead of standing like this with your arms crossed and looking down at your self-righteous nose at someone else, maybe, just maybe, we could find the beat and start dancing at the party with those who've received God's grace. Yeah, we can cheer for that. Absolutely, we can cheer. And then the last thing is just simply this. There's some of you that your guilt is dealing with you. And what I mean by that is this, it's eating you up inside. And you've learned how to cope with it by binge watching a show, by playing your favorite game, by getting busy with work, by trying to date around, by trying to find other relationships, or God forbid, you're, you're on something that you've become addicted to because it numbs the pain inside that you have to face when your guilt comes back up. And that's how you're coping with it. It's dealing with you. And can I just tell you, the Father's arms are wide open. And you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to be embarrassed anymore of your past or of your sin or of what you think everyone knows about you and how they're all thinking about you and how they're all judging you. You don't have to numb the pain any longer. And I've asked our team to come and, and to help me this morning and and if you have to leave I totally get that I understand that okay I, ha I have three small kids too or younger kids I, I get it if you have to slip out that's fine but if you don't if you could just hang here for a second because this song there's a line in this song that says this it says I saw it all I saw it all 
I saw all of your sin. I saw all of your excuses. I saw all of the embarrassing moments. I saw what you did last summer. I saw what you did over spring break. I saw it all. And I still chose the cross. I saw everything. Everything that you've hidden from your wife. Everything you've hidden from your parents. Everything that you don't think anyone else knows. I saw everything. And I still chose the cross. So you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to pretend like everything's okay when it's not okay. It's okay not to be okay. And church, we've messed up because sometimes we come in here on a Sunday morning and we act like it's not okay that you're not okay. But I want to tell you, I want to remind you, it's okay not to be okay. And if you can't be real here, then where in the world can you be real at? And if you can't be honest to God here or honest to God with us, then where in the world are you going to go to find that kind of love and forgiveness? So they're going to put the words up on the screen. And I would love just for a moment for you to, if you can just be still and listen to this song. And then I'm going to come back and close this in prayer. But this song is just simply called this, Out of Hiding. Come out. Come out of hiding. You're safe here with me.